Welcome to the podcast Terrorism and Political Violence Issues Up Close. A podcast produced by the journal Terrorism and Political Violence in collaboration with Utrecht University. In this series, we take a deep dive into the topics of terrorism and political violence. Special guests and editors of the TPV Journal will discuss a range of subjects. The history of terrorism, its causes and consequences, questions concerning political violence and major global trends and threats. Today we welcome our very first guest on the podcast, Martha Crenshaw. We are very happy to have Martha as our first guest today. Martha will be interviewed by Beatrice de Graaf, editor at TPV and historian at Utrecht University. Together, Martha and Beatrice will cover some of the many topics Martha has studied in her career. Enjoy this episode. Good morning, good afternoon to everyone listening in. Uh, I'm recording the TPV podcast today with Professor Martha Crenshaw. She joins me here from the United States. It's early in the morning there. And I'm very happy and proud that we have Martha in our midst for this first podcast. Martha is Professor of Political Science at Stanford University and she is a Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spoyer Institute for International Studies and she had many more fellowships and participations in many other colleges and programs and um, she is one of the pioneers and that's the first and foremost reason that we have her here. She is the, one of the pioneer in terrorism studies as we know it today. So very pleased to have you here, Martha. Thank you, Beatrice. It's a great pleasure to be with you and to record this for TPV. So uh, how early is it in the day at your place? It's about 7.30 in the morning. And is this when you raise up and start reading about terrorism? Well, actually, <laughs> sometimes I do other things like go for a walk because it's rather warm here. So if you want to get outside and do something, you have to do it very early in the morning. So that's more of a routine is to get outside and then read about terrorism while it's very hot outside. Well, that sounds that sounds a good uh, way of beginning your day. Um, well, I would first like to ask you about the beginning of your career when you started thinking and writing and reading about terrorism. Could you tell us a little bit about that? How, when and why did you start your endeavors in this field or you created the field? Well, it is true that when I began being interested in terrorism and doing research, there's very, very little written on the subject, indeed, almost nothing. I was interested in the Algerian war the original Algerian war uh, that began in 1954. And I think my interest stemmed from the fact that I had spent my junior year in college and university in Paris. And the war was still very much a very live memory in France at that time. So when it came time for me to choose a topic for a seminar paper in graduate school, I thought, well, I'll write about the Algerian war. But what about the Algerian War, rather long and complicated conflict. And I just happened to be reading another book that said people haven't studied terrorism very much. And I thought, well, there's a topic, terrorism in the Algerian War. And that's in effect how it all began. And were you already interested in violence as such, as a phenomenon, or more in the motives that drive people to violence or in the ways states react? Because... You are an historian by training, so what exactly was your interest in this field? Well, 
my training is actually more in political science, which uh, in the U.S. at least is uh, is distinct from history, although at the time that I was trained, it was more like history than it is now. It's become much more mathematical and scientific. But I, I was interested in revolutionary movements. I was interested in history, particularly the history of the Russian revolutionary movement. And also remember that when I was in college and in graduate school, it was the time of the Vietnam War, and there was a lot of interest in violence, insurgency, uh, revolution, rebellion. And I think that context shaped my interest a lot. So when you were studying, I think it came out a little bit later, was you, were you interested in this perennial question, why men and women rebel? It's the book by Ted Gurr that came out in 1970. Or were you more interested in, well, small wars, insurgencies far away with Vietnam? So what was your interest like? I think to begin with, it probably was more in the question of why resort to violence. Now, in a case like Algeria or even Vietnam, it was understandable as part of a broader insurgency. But as I was beginning to study these phenomena, we began to also to have the phenomenon of terrorism in democracies, particularly in Europe, also sort of the beginnings of a terrorist campaign in the U.S., uh, usually from the far left, occasionally from the far right, then from nationalist and separatist movements. And that provided even more of a puzzle because why in a democracy would you have access to peaceful protests? You have access to the vote. You have freedom of speech. Would you resort to conspiratorial violence in order to overturn a democratic political order? So this created even more of a puzzle, and my interest sort of moved on from Algeria to those sorts of cases. And um, your interest moved on, but you also had a positionality yourself at the time, um, I can imagine. As, as we have today, people feel about the war on terror. They have opinions about uh, critical race theory, uh, opposition, uh, violence. So where did you stand back then? Were you feeling with the state, trying to restore order, pacify those movements? Were you at the side of the open democracy, trying to fend for the pillars of the democracy? Or were you on the side of the rebels? Could you feel with them? Could you say something about your positionality back then? Well, as a social scientist, of course, the effort is to be as objective as possible. And what I tried to understand was the motive for the use of violence. And in my early years, I was focused particularly on the strategy of the use of violence, that it was something, in effect, utilitarian. Uh, you had an objective and violence was a way of getting you closer to your objective. I was also interested in how states responded to terrorism. I had written about the French response to the FLN in Algeria, which is a disastrous response, uh, fueled violence rather than diminished violence. So I was interested in that aspect of it, but even more interested in the why part of it. And as I say, I was trying to be objective and therefore I was often accused of being sympathetic to those who use violence because I tried to understand what they were about. But my interest was in understanding why and whether or not they were strategic in their thinking. Over time, I began to look more into the psychology of their motivations. Uh, my colleagues who were 
psychologists and psychohistorians encouraged me to think that perhaps there was more to it than simply a calculation of ends and means and costs and benefits. So I was more interested in the why of violence rather than how to combat it or how to restore order. Not that those are not important. And did you also try back then already to interview people or go to movies like this famous Algier, the Battle of Algier movies? Did you try to visualize or empathize in order to understand? Did you try to come near them or did you try to remain distant? Well, in the case of Algeria, at the time that I was doing my research, it was not feasible to try to go to Algeria to ask them about the use of terrorism during their revolution. Uh, it was not I would not have been able to get a visa. I did talk to people who had returned to France. Uh, I talked, for example, to French academics who had been instrumental in trying to resolve the conflict, uh, such as the anthropologist uh, Germain Tillion. And I read a lot of revolutionary publications, uh, a lot of uh, things written by the terrorists, quote unquote, themselves. And yes, the famous film, The Battle of Algiers, where the chief leader of the Algiers terrorist network played himself in the movie. It was his idea to make a movie which says something about, I think, the personality sometimes of, uh, of terrorist leaders. I happened to see the film when it was first shown in France, in Paris. There were demonstrations in the streets. The war was still so live then. There weren't any bombs in the movie theaters, but people threw chairs and threw things at the screen to try to stop the showing. It's a very exciting time. Yes, and uh, it's it's almost a bit like with this movie, The Godfather, that uh, future terrorists started to mold themselves on the persona of this. I think his name was Gilles de Pontecarvo, wasn't he? Uh, one of the the key actors. And I read that Andreas Bader, one of the founders of the Red Army faction, that he even asked his mother to sew him silk pants that mirrored the clothing that this, this actor in the Battle of Algiers was wearing because they sympathized, but they also identified with these guerrillas. Well, it's certainly true that uh, the portrayal of the terrorists in the FLN, it was then called the Autonomous Zone of Algiers, was sympathetic, which is why many of the French authorities objected to it. Uh, Sheila Pontecorvo was the director of the film, and the actor slash terrorist who played himself was uh, Yasef Sadi. Actually, almost all of the actors in that film were amateurs. There, there was only one or maybe two professional actors, so that's what gives it a very realistic appearance. It, it's a classic film as a film. So you can see how someone like Andreas Bader would identify with these uh, rather dashingly portrayed figures who, in the end, come out victorious in their struggle. Yes, exactly. Let's not forget that. So w when you came back to the United States, did you then focus or shift your attention to the homegrown terrorism back then, whether underground or for some people the Black Panthers also were a terrorist organization. So did you also focus your attention on them or on the Red Army faction, the Red Brigades, the terrorist groups act that were active in the early 70s? Well, at that point, I decided that my work up to that point had been case study work, we would call it in political science. I, I had focused on particular cases of the IRA, for example, at that time. I decided that I wanted to become more 
of a generalist, more theoretical, uh, more uh, more of a conceptualist, we might say. And that's when I began to work on my article on the causes of terrorism that was published in 1981. And I tried to think, how can we link all of these cases across cases? And it seemed uh, really unbelievably ambitious at the time to try to do something like that. And I spent years actually working on that article. Uh, I spent an entire year at uh, what was in the British Library, which at the time was still in the British Museum, just reading histories where there were groups who used terrorism, the Russians, the Irish, the anarchists, the, any, any group I could find anything about to try to pull it all together. So I worked on a framework for analyzing causation. I also worked on issues such as contagion effects, when do groups imitate other groups. And in that case, we did work. Why, why was it that it appeared that West European and American underground groups were imitating primarily Latin American and Palestinian revolutionaries, just like Bader imitating the FLN in the old days. So we tried to puzzle that out as well. It seemed like a sort of reverse contagion effect because we usually thought of development spreading from the developed world to the less developed world and that was running the other way what was going on. Uh, so I began to move into a more generalist perspective and also began to work on the psychology of terrorism too which again cuts across many different cases, hopefully. Yes, what, what strikes me here, and I love your answer, is that you went back to history, to the British Library, to read histories, really causing historical sensation. Today, oftentimes, I got these questions, well, Beatrice, why bother and use history? Because today's terrorism is so new. What can you possibly learn from terrorism? But back then, in your days, the terrorism was also new. So how come that you went back to history and how did history help you? Because that's quite rare. The historians do their histories, political scientists do their models, but you combined the two. And for me, you're also a real and true historian. Well, I always liked history, simply liked to read history, so it was a pleasure to sit and read histories. It was not a chore at all. I would much rather read histories and, for example, code a lot of data, which I find, sorry to say, boring. <laughs> so I enjoyed reading the histories of these movements, and, and there were some wonderful magisterial histories of the Russian revolutionary movement, for example, and anarchists. So I found these cases in and of themselves intrinsically interesting to read about. But I also saw that there were so many similarities. For example, that you have a building set of conditions that make violence perhaps likely, uh, frustrations, grievances, inequalities, uh, failure of the state to respond to demands from the public, but something sets it off, some precipitant. And it might be slightly different in different cases, It might be the death of a dem demonstrator like Benno Onesorg in the case of Germany. Uh, it, it would be something that serves as a catalyst. So you would say, well, you have propitious conditions, but something has to, in effect, set the spark that turns people to using violence. And what is that spark? So in different cases, it might be something slightly different, but there's a spark somewhere. And you will have a determined set of people who are prepared to act when that catalyst uh, comes along, or when they see weakness on the side of the state. So that the IRA, for example, in its early days, early days, 
saw Britain uh, weakened by its engagement in the First World War and an opportunity to try to seek Irish independence. So they saw opportunity at that time. So something about the timing. So it teaches you those sorts of things, that there really are commonalities, but you're not going to see them unless you read deeply into history. Mm-hmm. No, that's very true. Would you say that your article uh, in 1981, which indeed traced patterns of causation, uh, and uh, you also introduced then and later these different levels of analysis, the macro level, the micro psychological level, and this in-between level, do you think that is your most important added value or your most important contribution to shaping the field of terrorism studies? Was that something new back then? Well, I think my article was one of the first ones to try to set out a framework. And it was one of the first ones, I think, that had uh, a deep historical grounding. Uh, Other people, historians, were beginning to write at that time. Walter Lacour comes to mind. He was genuinely a historian. But they tended to write general histories. This happened, then this happened, a narrative history, which... Uh, Many historians don't do that anymore either now. But I was trying to generalize, but to use history in the generalization. So I think that that article certainly uh, made an impact, uh, surprisingly. I'm constantly surprised. It is read a lot. It's reprinted in anthologies. It still stands the test of time, I think, even though its examples are now probably somewhat uh, dated. But I also think that I felt that my argument that violence can be strategic was important. And I still hold to that, that yes, there's a a strong psychological dimension to it, but there's also a cost-benefit dimension to it. If you don't have very many people to mobilize for your cause, then terrorism is a way of getting your cause, in effect, on the table for discussion. And it it gets attention. It still gets attention. And uh, you have to look at it like that. And then you can also look at other aspects of motivation. And I, I felt then, and I feel now quite strongly, that you cannot understand terrorism only by looking at underlying conditions, social, political, economic factors. Uh, those are there in the background, but they are not the direct causes of violence. Now, that brings me to this this perspective that also has been growing uh, since the 80s, 90s, I would say, a more conceptual history of terrorism, an ideological history of terrorism, which also relates strongly to the narrative. That, yes, there are causational factors, there are commonalities in history, there is these uh, opportunity structures. Uh, Donatella de Depota also wrote very seminal literature on that, trigger events, escalation ladders. But... There's also something like you almost could phrase it as a Hegelian perspective on terrorism, but sometimes an idea floats and sometimes it goes down, like with the left-wing revolutionary terrorism that that went down somehow. And then there came the holy terrorism. So how do you feel if you take your causation approach and your commonality approach seriously, which, which I also do? How do you then account for these different sets of narratives? And how do you feel, for example, about um, David Rappaport's wave approach? There's certainly a, a what we would call a normative dimension to terrorism. And by that, I mean a set of ideas that circulate at a given point in time in history. 
linked usually to ideology and beliefs about politics and uh, political order, uh, justice, uh, the right versus the wrong, uh, often uh, equality, inequality. And these sort of uh, ways, if we want to call them that, do dominate at certain times in history so that uh, from the anti-colonial movements beginning really in the 1940s all the way up through the 1960s and 70s were very dominant. And so the left-wing terrorism in Western Europe, of course, borrowed a lot from anti-colonial norms and ideas that provided inspiration. Uh, if you re remember, of course, the Red Army Fraction, one of their aims, they said, was to bring the war home to Germany. The Weathermen, similarly, in the US, we want to bring the Vietnam War home to you and show you what war is like so that, that you don't engage in war, the state doesn't engage in war. Uh, so definitely there are these ideological, ideational, we call them in the jargon, uh, currents at any given point in time that are dominant. And certainly it did appear that left revolutionism began to fade away, national separatism began you know, they rose, they they faded, and then we had the rise of so-called religious terrorism that can be dated to the Iranian Revolution, I think, in 1979. Even though that was a Shia revolution, it, it translated itself into Sunni ambitions as well. And the end result, probably not the end result, one result, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Salafism, uh, Jihadism. Now, the idea of waves... I think it was a very interesting concept, and, it, and uh, David Rappaport is a political theorist uh, by training, and so it's that it came from someone who uh, whose interests lay in in that area already, and it was a very influential idea. I think the problem is that one wave doesn't necessarily recede before the next wave appears, so you have wave upon wave upon wave with successive waves simply leaving leaving a trace on the beach, so to speak, to carry the metaphor that far, so that one doesn't go back. And I think to use the terminology or the concept of a wave does make you think, well, that wave, it rises, it falls, another one then rises, when actually they're rising concurrently, and, uh, and they don't always recede. So, you know, we've been astonished at how long Salafi jihadism has maintained its force in, in the minds of, 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 of some peoples around the world, a really extraordinary tenacity of this set of ideas. Yes, although the wave does allow us to investigate um, its waning, and the waxing, but also the waning. You were also one of the first uh, scholars who positioned themselves in the field of studying the end of terrorism. Uh, something that Audrey Kurt Cronin, of course, also worked extensively upon, why terrorism ends, Lena Malki. I also wrote something about it, why it stops, and also then what our contribution to that waning of terrorism can be. And that gives something hopeful to the concept of wave. If you consider terrorism to be a wave, it also comes to an end, and perhaps we can even impact that end. So it is an, almost an obligation for hopeful counterterrorism politics, or do you think that is far too naive or optimistic? I certainly think that we need to look at how terrorism ends, because it does end. Uh, when I first proposed that 
we could study how it ended. I would say, but it hasn't ended. My audience has said, it's still going on. It doesn't end. But of course, it does end. And Audrey Cronin made the point that even Al-Qaeda could come to an end. It didn't seem possible at the time, but it does come to an end. And I think you're correct in saying that the concept of a wave does imply that the wave could recede as well as rise. And what can we do to encourage it to to recede. Uh, I became interested in that or returned to my interest because many years ago when I applied for a fellowship actually from the National Endowment for the Humanities here in the U.S., I said I want to study how terrorism begins and how it ends. So after I had studied how it began, I remembered that I had promised I wanted to study how it ended as well. So I turned my attention to that and I tried to say, well, here are the different ways in which it ends. There's not one way in which it ends, but it did seem to me important to stress to the state that often what the state does causes escalation rather than a diminution of violence. Unintentionally, the state wishes to end violence, but it takes measures that only encourage violence because it doesn't understand the consequences of these actions. Uh, often the state proceeds with very poor intelligence about what's going on. And I mean both intelligence in terms of tactical intelligence, as well as a deeper understanding of the social forces that are at play in, in a conflict. And that often the terrorists uh, contribute to their own demise by what I called exceeding the bounds of tolerance of even their supporters. They go too far, they commit atrocities that alienate people who were sympathetic to their cause. And that when the government steps in the way and say commits even greater atrocities, it interrupts this process of decline that could have been encouraged rather than discouraged. Yes. Well, allow me to shift gears somewhat in my questions. Um, what if uh, the way we look at terrorism as an essentialist category, as a phenomenon which can be studied in time, which can be broken down in causalities, is in itself the problem? There are scholars out there, and you know that. For example, Tarek Bakavi has uh, Tarek Bakavi has made this point, and he says, well. The whole terrorism conflict, asymmetric warfare as such, is the result of a conflict between the powerful and the powerless, reinforcing the cycle of violence. And we ourselves, in framing something as terrorism, or even applying this wave theory, is in itself alienating, uh, uh, is a project of Orientalism, perhaps even, on terrorism. So how do you feel about that critical take on terrorism, which is very much present in critical terrorism studies nowadays. And um, well, how, how do you feel about that? Well, first of all, I think it's important for us to be uh, reflective and to think about how it is that the way we study things and what we study have, in effect, real-world consequences, uh, that our observation, our mode of observation has an effect on the observed and on those who are observing us and the observed. And so it's well aware to be self-critical in that way. And as you know, we have an entire journal of critical terrorism studies. It's become a, a relatively popular field. And uh, I've often uh, participated with scholars in this vein uh, at conferences and workshops. And I find it very interesting, although it's not the approach that I necessarily take. It's interesting because- Why, why not? Very... Why, sorry, why well, not? 
I, I simply am more interested, I think, in uh, probably still the strategic approach. That is, I'm much more of an empiricist uh, myself, simply by by inclination. And since you can't study everything, you can't study every dimension of everything, you just choose those that actually simply interest you more. So I've always simply, I've always studied what interested me. It's an interesting problem out there and tried to find a way to deal with it just because the problem was interesting to me and because I wanted to see that there could be a solution. So let me say that as an academic, we certainly don't want to do anything that would contribute to conflict. Uh, worsen it, we, we, I think in the end, all of us would like to see conflict resolved. We'd like to see less violence, less death, uh, particularly of civilians in by the state, by the uh, opponents to the state uh, on both sides. But uh, the use of the term, the concept terrorism, the thing is often even at the time in contemporary language, uh, the individuals and groups using what we would call terrorism also called it terrorism as well. Uh, there was uh, an understanding of what was meant by it that did not depend upon uh, an external analyst sort of placing a framework, an outside framework, an alien framework. That is, it was the understanding of the actors themselves in terms of what they were doing. Uh, there are many, many, many memoirs out there and now many, many interviews and statements because we now have so much deeper and wider access to how people think on the side of, of non-states, uh, that this is their understanding of what they are doing. And I think taking that understanding into account is really extremely important for all of us who are trying to analyze the phenomenon. Yes, and a question that is a follow-up on this, this conundrum of defining terrorism and seeing terrorism has to do with the so-called right-wing wave of terrorism. I mean, nowadays there is this theory that the next wave, the fifth wave, may be a right-wing wave. I don't know if that's the case. I feel that there has always been right-wing terrorism in history, and it may perhaps more be like a parasitic wave, which piggybacks on each original terrorism wave. It did so with anarchism, it did so with anti-colonial, the OAS, it did so with left-wing ter terrorism violence, and now again with Islamic jihadist terrorism. So... If we take this, this phenomenon of terrorism too much from a Western point of view, we may miss the fact that right-wing terrorism was always amongst us as well. And historians are now going back in the archives and finding all kinds of instances and incidents of right-wing terrorism in the 70s and the 80s, which was not construed as a trend or as a wave back then because it was construed as hooliganism or uh, just as, as random violence. But now we see that, for example, the Weersportgruppe Hoffmann, um, uh, transnational terrorism. I have a PhD, Annalotte Jans, who works on this. And she now pieces together the puzzle parts of this puzzle of right-wing terrorism, which has been always amongst us, but we sort of have missed it. So can you say something about that? How do you see right-wing terrorism? Did we miss it? Is it a wave or is it something else? 
Well, if it's a wave, it's been a kind of undercurrent for centuries. So right. it's, it, it has certainly been around for quite a long time. If you look back, say, at the rise of National Socialism and the interwar period uh, in Europe and also in the U.S., uh, you certainly see a lot of what we could call right-wing terrorism. Uh, the thing was, it soon became subsumed into the power of the state. And that's often a problem in trying to analyze right-wing terrorism as a distinct phenomenon in its own right, because it is often in the service of the state and sometimes benefits from collusion on the part of state authorities. So the example that comes to my mind is uh, Italy in the 1970s. Uh, one of the most disastrous bombings in Italy was the Piazza Fontana bombing, which was a deliberate effort on the part of the right to blame this on the left in order to provoke the state to take extreme measures against the left. So there's always been this symbiotic relationship between left and right. But I don't think that would lead us to say that the right is a reaction to violence on the left always. It could be. Both could be the rea a reaction to the other. But I think each has a, an independent drive, independent set of causes. And in the case of Italy, uh, I don't think the right-wing violence was caused by violence on the left so much as they rose symbiotically at, at the same time. So I, I agree that sometimes we have not seen right-wing terrorism as, as as much of a problem as we would have otherwise because it claimed to be in the service of the state. But think back to Latin America in the 60s and early 1970s, the death squads. So also, I guess what we'd say then is that right-wing terrorism, if we try to put it in the category of non-state or anti-state, sometimes it doesn't fit comfortably in that category. It, they think of themselves as acting on behalf of the state or on behalf of a mythical state that should act in this way. They see themselves as imposing order, and that's a self-perception, but it certainly has always been there, and, it's, and I'm very glad to hear that historians are going back and looking at how the phenomenon existed, uh, obviously, from the night, well, from the time of the French Revolution, at least on. Yes. Would you then say that perhaps right-wing terrorism is even more than left-wing terrorism um, a display of a crisis of legitimacy? You wrote about this in the New York Times and you mentioned Ehud Sprinzak, the Israeli political scientist. And you could say that uh, domestic terrorism, which is so broadly supported as right-wing terrorism is, in effect, well, not the perpetrators, but the larger ideas and sympathies, that it signals a current crisis of legitimacy in the United States, but also in Europe, perhaps? I think that there is a crisis of legitimacy. Ehud uh, Sprinzak wrote about stages through which people become disillusioned with the political order, social and political order, disillusioned with the authorities, and wish to restore order uh, or wish to replace the existing order. And he argued that this kind of disillusionment proceeds from uh, what he calls a crisis of confidence. You simply lack confidence in the state and in the order, but you're still not willing to bring it down. But this, if unaddressed, this crisis of confidence leads to a real crisis of legitimacy when opponents of the state on the right or on the left oppose its very existence and think it should be replaced by a different order. In effect, they develop a revolutionary mindset. Uh, I think that uh, what we have now in the United States is 
a very broad and disparate movement. It includes white supremacists. It includes what are called accelerationists who want to bring about a civil war or a race war. It includes neo-Nazis. It includes the militia movement, which appears to be a very American sort of phenomenon. These are individuals who see themselves as the true heirs of the original revolution that has been betrayed by the elites in power, and they're going to restore. This is, of course, a common right-wing trope. We're going to restore an older order that has been corrupted and subverted by usually mysterious and evil forces. This is a very, very uh, disparate and diverse movement. Actually, we refer to them collectively as violent right-wing extremists, but there are many, many differences among them. And there's, there's indeed not very much unity. Uh, should they pull together more effectively, they would be even more dangerous. They also have transnational links. As you know, there are linkages among all of these groups, the Russian imperial movement, uh, Atomwaffen, all have links between, links between Europe and the US. The Russian imperial movement obviously is closely linked to Russia as well. Uh, Russia has frequently been accused of aiding in probably minor ways uh, some of these groups in order to create disruption uh, in the West simply for its it's uh, it's nuisance value, but I think it's it's very appropriate for Western authorities, particularly Western democracies, to think long and hard about how to deal with the problem, and not to dismiss it as something that couldn't possibly be a threat to the state because it's actually sort of on the side of the state, uh, more or less. The U.S. just yesterday issued the first national strategy for combating domestic terrorism. It's a very, uh, let me say, uh, modest document, which really calls for uh, doing more of the same. And it borrows some ideas from uh, the prevention of Islamist extremism uh, uh, policy community, uh, such as developing resilience. Uh, I think that some of those ideas are misplaced in the case of of the far right, but it's at least uh, a recognition at the top of the American government that this is a problem that needs to be addressed, which until the Biden administration, there was a real reluctance to even see that it was a problem. Yes. And isn't it also the fact that um, um, if you zoom out again, look back in history, you can see that every larger wave, if you like, or culture of terrorism um, profited from new information communication technologies. The anarchists from the newspapers, the anti-colonials from the radio, specific weaponry, uh, the, the, the revolution was telev television in the 70s. And you could say today's wave of terrorism, both the jihadism, but perhaps even more so the far right-wing uh, terrorism, profits from the social media, which is only with us for 10 years. And we already have seen a massive displacement of energy of violence of hate crime all over the world and it's sort of you say the movement is dispersed uh, diverse uh, there's not much unity on the other hand i see a global movement that connects the dot the QAnon conspiracies they connect the dots between many also far-right conspiracy problems so the social media also links the violent extremist with let's say still law-abiding citizens who do display the same attitudes and feelings and sympathies. And there was a PhD defense in the Netherlands just now, 
by Nikki Sterkeberg, who says the real problem with far-right extremism is not so much the far-right extremism as such, but the fact that many populist or conservative parties have adopted their language about great replacement, for example, um, the Great Reset. It's now common language in not just the Russian imperialist movements or the Atomwaffen, but in the AFD and in Dutch political parties as such, which is enforced by social media because those ideas, they spread from social media bubbles, Twitter bubbles via hashtags, uh, and, and, and data analysts have investigated this. It spreads to the real world and, and to, to street protests. So the, it's difficult, difficult, complex, but my main question is, do you see today's far-right terrorism as something new, also propelled by these social media algorithms that, that link them together in a far larger, more globalized scale than before? Certainly, social media has provided a means of communication that makes it, one, super, super easy, uh, two, very difficult for governments to deal with, democratic governments who don't want to suppress free speech. There are debates going on now in Europe and the U.S. over how to rein in companies like Google, uh, Facebook, uh, the other things that we use all the time now, uh, all of us. And therefore, what it means is that, yes, people with extreme ideological views can have access to a much wider audience. And in the old days where you would not want to have been seen walking around with an anarchist newspaper, you can go home and turn on your computer and watch propaganda from any direction. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who accept uncritically what they happen to see on their computer screen, accept it as truth, quote unquote, without using a critical faculties to examine it and wonder if it is true. I encounter this all the time, trying to persuade people that just because someone said it on a, a podcast doesn't mean that it's necessarily empirically valid as a statement. But I think there's a, so I think social media has had an enormous impact and that with each development in the means of communication, technological development, communication has gotten faster and broader with each step. But let me pose a sort of uh, contrarian observation, which is that at the same time, it makes it harder to form a true trusting in-group of individuals who can act effectively in terms of using violence, because you cannot trust via the internet. And I think we're still trying to study this, but can you form these bonds that unite people so deeply in the conspiracies where you met face-to-face -face through the internet, particularly in a case where, for example, in the United States, informers are rampant. Uh, the US FBI uses informers quite a lot to interrupt plots against the government, quite a lot. Uh, it's more common in the U.S. and in Europe for there to be the use of these informants. So your distrust of someone you've just met, perhaps even seen uh, via Zoom, uh, you can't trust them. And I think that, therefore, the reach is greater, but it is a looser, lighter, uh, less binding link to other people. There's sort of a contradiction there. Yeah, I can see your point, although... This could also um, predict more lone operating attacks. People on their own committing small, very small scale, perhaps ineffective attacks, but still. Like in Halle or in Hanau recently, or in the Netherlands, there were two elderly ladies arrested for 
committing a, an attack or threatening one of our top virologists, elderly ladies who would never have become terrorists in the past. Well, that's very true that there is likely to be an increase in the what we might call inspired violence or terrorism. We'll just say violence now in order not to go off onto what's terrorism and what's not. But people who are simply inspired as individuals or a couple of individuals, nobody told them to do it. Nobody told them how to do it. They simply observed and acted on that observation. And then as you proceed up the ladder, you can see that there's also there are also individual acts that are instigated by a group. For example, uh, al-Qaeda uh, in, uh, in Yemen, uh, a famous magazine called Inspire in English that gave you instructions as to what you could do. Then you proceed along to actual conspiratorial acts where a leader of a group said, let's plan this, plan how to do it, now you execute it. So we have these different levels, but so perhaps with the advent of social media, more violence has moved down to that level of less control from the top. And of course, this poses problems for any serious contender against the state as well, because the leaders of a group can't control what happens and it could be uh, it could be to their yes, detriment. Yes, thank you. So, Marta, when I started um, my studies, history and also political history, I read this book, Terrorism in Context, and this brought me on my path being a terrorism researcher. So what would you advise future female or male young scholars if they want to enter the field of terrorism studies? What book should they read? What should they do? Perhaps you have two, three tricks of the trade for us. Well, I will return to something I said earlier that you will like, which is read history. Uh, it's always profoundly annoying to me to pick up uh, an article on terrorism, for example, or a book that says, well, you know, nobody ever thought of this or studied this, so I think I will. And immediately in my mind, I think, but what about, what about, <laughs> because so much, had, there was a body of knowledge and a body of theory, uh, a body of empirical uh, accumulation of facts that these people simply ignored uh, because they went off on uh, on a method. So I would say uh, read deeply into history and read deeply into the field. Don't ignore the fact that there has been writing on terrorism since the 1970s through the 80s through the 90s, a number of important works. And these works have a lot to tell us still. So many of the ideas have been there for decades. Uh, I think of Della Porta, Donatella Della Porta, whom you mentioned, uh, Michelle Weaviorka, who wrote a book on terrorism years ago, uh, how, how terrorism is in effect a negation of a social movement, the very interesting sociologist perspective on terrorism. So both of those things. And then what we always try to tell our students in political science, focus on the problem. Don't focus on the method. Don't start with the answer. Find a problem that really interests you. And if it's something to do with terrorism, try to identify a problem and then think about how can I explain it? How can I answer it and proceed from there? I think you have to be determined. And I'll just tell you briefly that that volume, Terrorism in Context, uh, it began as a proposal to the U.S. State Department uh, to fund a series of case studies 
of terrorism because I had initially thought I would write a kind of general tome, and I realized that I needed more expertise in different areas, different languages, different cultures, and I would be better off to collect some experts. Well, the State Department did not fund it. As I understand it, they um, they spent their money on a perimeter fence for their embassy in Beirut it's a time of terrorism in Lebanon. And so uh, some years later, I happened to meet um, Gary Sick, uh, an author who was working for the Ford Foundation. And he said, we're interested in funding something on terrorism. Do you have any ideas? And I thought, yes, I do, actually. I have an outline of a book. And I did. So I presented them with that proposal, and they were interested in funding academic research. And so that was how that volume got off the ground. It took years. And then when I tried to publish it, you've noted that it's rather long, over 800 pages. Publishers did not want an 800-page tome on terrorism. It Fortunately, uh, the editor at uh, Penn State Press agreed to take it. He didn't cut it. He published it. And I want you to know that it's still in print. You can still buy a copy. Yes, and we still <laughs> prescribe it for students. So thank you, Marta. What you sort of just presented to us is this, this, this combination of curiosity and also tenacity, and perseverance to, to, to go through with your problem. So... Uh, Well, I think we listened to you as a master who's spoken to us from the field. And I thank you very much for this, Martha. And I hope you have a lovely day. Thank you so much, Beatrice. It really was a great pleasure. Your questions were terrific. We could continue this conversation for hours, I'm sure. So you have a nice evening as well. Yes, thank you. Bye. See you soon. And with that, we come to the end of today's episode. This podcast was brought to you by the journal Terrorism and Political Violence, Utrecht University, the Hub Security and Open Societies, and the sound design was done by Peter Veen. You can find more information, including about the next episodes, in the description. For now, thank you very much for listening, and join us again next time for the next episode on ethics and terrorism.